Hi there, this is the podcast designed to lift you up and make you feel better about life in the world of primary care with some free CPD thrown in too. We've got some primary care pearls of wisdom to share with you to make your life easier. Coming up, we're talking about gallery. Will this blood test revolutionise cancer diagnosis? We review the evidence behind it and ask how effective is it when cancer is suspected and how effective is it for population screening? Sore throat and tonsillitis, all you ever wanted to know. Can you remember when we should refer for tonsillectomy? Can you? Because I never can. Well, we've got a handy refresher for you. Uh, Carbon monoxide poisoning, it's rare but easily missed. Would you be able to spot patterns in the history to make the diagnosis? And our free video bites. We've given away six bites in our Pearl email. That's over 45 minutes of free video CPD, including infantile hemangioma, shoulder examination, hoarding disorder, serotonin syndrome, cancer early diagnosis, and short stature. We discuss what leapt out at us from each one. All of these questions that we've mentioned will be answered during the episode, so please listen as soon as you can to ensure that you have full access to all the free resources. And hear about a home visit with a canine catheter catastrophe. But I can't do all of this by myself. Who's going to keep me company? I'm Caroline Green. And I'm Nick Kendrew. We're both part of the Red Whale team. Come with us to reignite your passion for primary care. Welcome to the Primary Care Pod from Red Whale. The Primary Care Pod from Red Whale. And here we are looking back at all the pearls that we re- released in December. So hi, Caroline, how are you doing? I'm all right, thanks, Nick. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, just kind of recovering from Christmas um, and sort of looking forward to the new year, getting everything everything ready. And <laughs> I'm not making any New Year's resolutions, though. That, I think that's a, it turns out that's a fool's errand, apparently. We shouldn't be doing that. We need to sort of have other things that we're going to be more long term, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Particularly New Year's resolutions that require you to give things up. So yes, that, me neither. I'm not making yes. any New Year's resolutions this year, but I am going to try and be a little bit more active. That's that's my plan. Get out in the winter yeah, sun. Definitely. Yeah, that's all good. I'm definitely going to do that. I'm going to maybe start running again. That's going to be something that I'll sort of build in um, around the dog walks. So that's the plan. So. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Excellent. Well, shall we shall we kick off? We've got lots to get through this month, as always. So we're going to kick off with our first pearl. And this one was titled Galeri, a blood test that will revolutionise cancer diagnosis. Now, this is what we said when we released the pearl. Scientists have taken a step towards one of the biggest goals in medicine, a universal blood test for cancer. That was the BBC News headline from the 19th of January 2018. Now, while this may still be a way off, the Galeri test or gallery test, however you want to say it, I'm not sure, (laughs) um, Mm. it's been developed by a US firm and has shown promise and is being trialled in the UK. There are few cancers for which we have effective screening tests and many cancers may only show signs or symptoms at a later stage when curative treatment options are less likely. The tests we do have for screening can be unpleasant and intrusive and some people find them unacceptable. The holy grail would be to develop a non-invasive screening blood test for early stage cancer across a variety of sites with high levels of sensitivity and specificity. 
So when we released the pearl, we reviewed the evidence behind this blood test and we asked the questions, how effective is it when cancer is suspected and how effective is it for population screening? So Caroline, what did this one mean for you? This was the one that made me think and it sort of made me think, is this the future? Um, Now, of course, if we're going to meet the targets that NHS England set to diagnose more cancers at the earliest possible stage, then tests like this could be a game changer. But also, the other thing in my mind is this is potentially really high stakes screening and it's being run as part of a trial with a commercial organisation without involvement of the National Screening Committee. So interesting. Um, It's also important to note right at the beginning of this that this blood test is only currently available in a trial setting. So it's not something that our patients can ask for. And I don't think it can be accessed privately either. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It feels like it's it's a, a change in the landscape of where we're working in many ways. Mm. And particularly if you put it in context with a lot of the things that are going on in the US at the moment, um, when you see celebrities advocating having full body scans just to give them a check yeah. over. And I suspect that this might be part of that so that so it might be that 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 we end up using it for screening if if it's proven to be effective but it might also be used by organizations for for that kind of thing as well so it's just it's an interesting one to see how it's going to develop yeah very interesting okay so this one took me four minutes and 23 seconds to read and to give some more context from other headlines regarding this we have cancer blood test for 50 types to be trialed by nhs that was the bbc news headline from the 27th of november 2020 and multi-cancer blood test shows real promise in NHS study. And that was a, another BBC News headline. That was from the 2nd of June, 2023. So the Galeri test is made by a US company called Grail. Um, and it identifies fragments of circulating tumour DNA lost from cancer cells during cell death. Early trials suggested that it can identify the presence of this circulating tumour DNA and localise it to a specific organ system with a reasonable degree of accuracy. And if this DNA is identified, then this allows targeted investigation. So, so far, so good. Now, research so far has mainly been in a population where cancer was already suspected. So how did this perform, Caroline? Yeah, so to answer this, we look at a UK study called Simplify, that the results of which were published in The Lancet in July 2023. And in this study, they looked at a population of about 6,000 people who were suspected of having cancer. So they'd already seen a GP and been referred. They were either having tests for cancer or they were waiting on an urgent cancer pathway. And the specific sites that were included in the study were gynaecological cancers, lung and upper and lower GI cancers. Now, all of the participants in this trial had the usual tests, but in addition, they also had the gallery blood test. And the results of the usual investigations were then compared with the results of the blood test. And they found that overall, the blood test had a sensitivity of 66%. So it correctly identified the presence of cancer in about two thirds of the population who turned out to have a cancer. And it had a specificity of about 98%. So correctly identified the absence of cancer in those who didn't have it in most cases. Sounds good, yeah? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a hitch. 
Because, of course, the whole purpose of a blood test like this eventually is to pick cancer up at the earliest possible stage to increase the chances of successful treatment. And in this study and in other similar studies that have been published, unfortunately, cancers at their earliest stage produce less circulating tumour DNA. And so the test, as it is at the moment, has lower sensitivity for early stage cancers. And for example, in this study, the sensitivity varied from only 24% in stage one cancers to 95% in stage four cancers. So this might limit its use for that stated aim of picking up cancer at its earliest possible stage. And it brings us on to the next big question, which is how effective is it in a population where cancer isn't suspected? So effectively in a screening context. Yeah, and the current answer is that we don't know yet. Uh, now, to be able to answer this, there is a much larger UK study evaluating the gallery test um, in a population which doesn't have suspected cancer, and it's a prospective cohort randomised control trial. And this will assess whether gallery has a role as a population screening tool. Now, the gallery mm -hmm. trial has recruited 140,000 people without a history of or a treatment of for cancer in the past three years across eight cancer alliances. This is Northern, Cheshire and Merseyside, Greater Manchester, West Midlands, East Midlands, East of England North, um, South East London and Kent and Medway. Um, and it's now closed for recruitment. But you might have patients that you know are in the trial. You might have heard about it already. Um, now, participants have all had a blood test and been randomised uh, to this test being analysed immediately, and that's the intervention group, or stored for potential future analysis, the control group. The primary endpoint is the incidence of stage three and four cancers in the intervention versus the control group. So if circulating tumour DNA is identified in the blood tests of the intervention group, they will be referred on by the study team to a site-specific NHS urgent suspected cancer pathway. It's hoped that results will start to become available within four to five years of randomisation, so probably by about 2025 to 2026. If interim results, which are likely to be published in March 2024, are promising, in inverted commas, um, then NHS England is planning to run a separate GRAIL interim implementation pilot from July 2024 to June 2026, focusing on areas of higher deprivation not included in the current NHS gallery trial. It's interesting, and this was a subject of a BMJ News report. And of course, the intention is to try and help to pick up cancers at an earlier stage, particularly in populations affected by health inequalities. And that is an honourable intention. But the BMJ News report expressed some concerns about this decision because of the significant cost of the test. It's estimated to be about £390 million for 1 million tests. And that's assuming a 50% discount from the company. Now, that works out as more than the annual cost of breast and bowel screening programmes combined in the UK. And at the moment, this test hasn't been evaluated and there doesn't seem to be any involvement of the National Screening Committee. And that led the authors of the BMJ report to reflect that there does seem to be a bit of a lack of transparency from NHS England at the moment about how these interim results will be judged promising and whether the data will really be there to you know, support this decision and whether it will be opened and shared with the 
wider scientific community. So this really is a kind of watch this space, but I think lots of us in practice may see patients being part of these trials. Yeah, definitely watch the space. So here are the learning points for that pearl. It's potentially viable to screen for cancers using a blood test, but lower sensitivity in early stage disease may limit their usefulness. And trials of the Galeri test are ongoing in the UK. Your practice or cancer alliance may be involved and now you'll have heard of it. Let's move on now to our second pearl. And this one was entitled sore throat and tonsillitis, all you ever wanted to know. And this is what we said when we released it. Do you remember about a year ago, we were in the grip of the media reporting on the scarlet fever and invasive group A strep epidemic. We witnessed a huge surge in demand across the primary care setting and antibiotic prescribing soared. And yet we know that most cases of sore throat do not need antibiotics. In this pearl, we offer you a whirlwind tour of all things sore throat. And whatever your role, there's something for everyone. This one was quite a few pages and was definitely one to sit down and have a nice tall latte to read it through. Uh, It took me about 18 minutes to read, but probably because I was rereading it to make sure I completely understood it, ready for our discussion purposes. So what did this one mean for you, Caroline? Well, this one made me realise that there is always something to learn, even about a topic that you think you know, like the back of your hand. Yeah, completely agree. And as it's been the season for festivities, then a good old quiz is probably in in order. Um, So how about we turn the questions that were originally mentioned in the written pearl um, into a quick fire quiz so that um, we can get right to the heart of what we need to know as quickly as possible. Um, So how do we assess sore throats? Ah, well. Before we launch into that, it's important to say that um, in their guidance, of course, NICE starts at the point assuming that we've taken a history, done an examination and considered the differentials. So things like scarlet fever and quinsy. And to move forward from here, which sounds a lot like an assessment for a sore throat, um, I'm going to answer your question with two questions of my own. Interesting. It feels like I'm interviewing a politician on Newsnight at the moment. (laughs) So go on. <laughs> yes, that's always been my dream. Okay, so here are my questions. Um, these are the ones we need to ask ourselves. So first, with a sore throat, as with any patient in primary care, is this person sick or are they high risk? And the second one is, are they a child? Okay, so why are we asking those questions? So in terms of is the person sick or high risk, we're trying to spot those ones that we need to think about or assess even more carefully, you know, making that decision. Can this be done over the phone or actually is this someone I need to see or somebody needs to cast eyes on? So in terms of is the person sick, you know, all those typical things, are they systemically unwell? Are they unstable? Are they getting worse? Always asking that question at the back of our mind, could it be sepsis? And remembering that high risk people, so for example, those who are immunocompromised are at higher risk of complications and might not present typically. So in this scenario, for those people, we'd be assessing them, obviously, and then making a decision of do they need immediate antibiotics and whether referral to hospital was necessary if there were signs of severe infection or complications. But why is it important if they're a child or not? Yeah, this is interesting. So actually, this one was new for me. So if a child's under three years old, then we actually shouldn't be using either fever pain or centaur scoring systems. And I know you're going to talk about those in a minute. And the reason for that is actually neither of those scoring systems have been validated in children under the age of three. And the NICE guidance also highlighted that actually 
it's fairly unusual for children of that age to present with sort of sore throat as their calling card. They're much more likely to just present with a fever or being non-specifically unwell. And I, I think that rings true, actually, with real life experience. Nice guidance doesn't always marry up with what we see in real life. But actually, in the youngest kids, they don't. we don't often end up with a message of two-year-old with sore throat. So, what we're doing in those clinical assessments is actually trying to find the focus of that child's not wellness. In addition to this, NICE also reminds us that in children under five years old who present with a fever, we can use that NICE fever guidance to support our management. So the traffic light system, making sure we take observations. Um, but we always need to take that in the context of the full clinical picture. The bottom line is we should be taking OBS on children because they're useful to spot, you know, deterioration in the clinical picture. But we should also always listen to our gut feeling when it comes to sick kids, in addition to the guidelines and any scores that we might use. Okay, so Nick, are you ready for the next question? I am. So the question is, which scoring system should we use? Ah, okay. Now, NICE recommends that we either use Fever Paint or Centaur on the basis that there is no clear-cut evidence that one is better than another. So that's interesting um, mm. because I thought that one was favoured more than the other. So more about that in a second. But we're likely to choose the one most accessible from our primary care IT system. And we'll put a link in the show notes for both of those in case you want to refresh your memory. So in both scoring systems, the higher the score the higher the risk of group A streptococcal infection. The NICE evidence review from the 2018 guidelines states that fever pain is favoured by some over the Centaur criteria because it tends to result in a lower antibiotic prescribing rate. And this is because Centaur is less good at identifying individuals with a low probability of a strep throat infection. Now, that's the bit that I had taken on board and I had been embracing up until now. Um, so just as a reminder, with the fever pain score and something that I share with patients and they seem to like it, is that um, with a fever pain score of 0 to 1, the chance of isolating um, strep is 13 to 18%. If it's 2 or 3 on the fever pain score, the chance of isolating strep is 34 to 40%. And if it's a fever pain score of 4 or 5, then that gives the isolating chance for streptococcus of 60 to 65%. So there we go. <laughs> and your next question then, Caroline, <laughs> how useful are throat yep. swabs? Ah, good question. So nice don't recommend the routine adoption of rapid antigen throat swabs in general practice for people with sore throats. And I think for most of us in sort of standard everyday general practice, we're probably not using throat swabs, though I know there are some out of hours settings where they do. And the reason that NICE don't recommend that we use them is it's actually based on the available evidence. They don't seem to add anything over and above the scoring tools we've just talked about in impacting how much we prescribe antibiotics or patient outcomes. So NICE concluded they're just not likely to be cost effective in a general practice setting and therefore not a great use of NHS resources. But it's important to note that NICE also state that this guidance about not using throat swabs 
doesn't cover people presenting with possible scarlet fever or the situation where there's a possible group A strep outbreak. So like we saw last winter. And in that situation, UKHSA might bring in different rules as they did in late 2022. I'm sure we all remember that time. Um, and <laughs> yes. there are also sometimes locally funded schemes in community pharmacy settings, for example, where throat swabs are being used um, to guide antibiotic prescribing. So a mixed picture, but for most of us working in standard general practice, no throat swabs. So Nick, for you, the next question, who needs antibiotics and which one should we choose? Oh, it's the million pound question there. <laughs> um, now, those scoring systems help us. You can't have a million with... pounds, though, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. okay. That's Sorry. Bad, That's bad luck. <laughs> can't run to that. Yeah. <laughs> So as I was saying, the scoring systems help with this. Um, and um, you just had me go through the percentages for the, the chance of isolating strep with the fever pain score. So for a fever pain score of zero or one or a Centaur score of naught, one or two, then we don't offer antibiotics. If the fever pain score is two or three, then we consider no antibiotics or a backup scripts. If the fever pain score is four or five or the Centaur score is three or four, then we'd consider based on symptom severity, either immediate antibiotics or a backup script. Now, this is the important bit. If a backup script is offered, then we need to explain that they don't need antibiotics immediately, that you'd use the script if there's no improvement in three to five days or if their symptoms worsen. And they should seek medical help if symptoms worsen rapidly or significantly or if they become very unwell. Now, these are all important things to document in the notes and to share with patients and their carers. Um, and so, you know, one way maybe to do that is to either to write that bit down or you could send it as a, a, an accurate sort of message to their phone so they can access it. And it will be something that you've you know, already uploaded. So it will be quick and easy to do. So all of those things might be something to bear in mind. Um, and then you know, moving on to what kind of antibiotics we should actually use. Well, for adults, the first line choice would be phenoxymethyl penicillin and alternatives if penicillin allergy would be clarithromycin or erythromycin if pregnant. Um, but we check the doses in the BNF and we'd also um, obviously check the specific doses for children from the children's BNF. So that's that bit. Um, and so for your next question, Caroline, do corticosteroids have a role to play? Well, this is an interesting one, isn't it? So people often consult us about sore throats, um, despite sort of all the education and all of the sort of self-management advice and things because they're in pain. And sometimes that might not be managed well enough with typical analgesia, particularly if the person's sort of struggling to swallow tablets or all that kind of thing. And the fact people consult because of pain had led researchers to ask the question, might steroids help? And there've actually been quite a few studies now, but the bottom line is that corticosteroids do offer some pain relief when given alongside antibiotics, but it's probably of modest clinical significance. And if we look at guidelines, NICE don't advocate the use of corticosteroids for sore throat. They did look at all the evidence in 2018. And the reason they chose not to advocate them is because there's an absence of studies that compare steroids head to head with pain relief. And there's also an absence of reporting of adverse events. The other problem is actually most of the available studies were performed in emergency departments and NICE felt that probably the symptoms that pitched up there would be more severe than we typically see in that primary care setting. Have you ever prescribed them, Nick? No, I haven't. I've, I've found it's very interesting to read. And I, I think if I was worried about somebody, I'd be getting them checked over by ENT. And I, I it's never even crossed my mind to think about 
steroids. I mean, maybe, maybe I might think about it slightly in the future, but I think from what we've just talked about, I think it's unlikely. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, I've, I've prescribed them once, but that was in a secondary care context when I was doing peds and we use them to support a kid with just really swollen tonsils to try and get them to drink some fluids so they could get off IVs. So very different from that context we see in general practice. Yeah. So to finish off, Nick, when should we refer for tonsillectomy? Ah, now, <laughs> this is something that I always have to look up um, to check that I've, give, I've given the correct information. And the way that I kind of get around it, I always have Redwell knowledge open and I always say to the patient, I'm just going to check they haven't changed the guidelines since I last checked, <laughs> which gives <laughs> me the option to have it in front of me. Um, so tonsillectomies have been made a low priority intervention across many areas of the UK and in Europe. And over the past 20 years, the number of tonsillectomies performed fell by up to 50%. And at the same time, hospital admissions for tonsillitis have increased by 136%. So... To answer your question, then we turn to the UK tonsillectomy referral guidelines for children and adults. And these are based on consensus and were designed to guide commissioning decisions. Now, if you want to immerse yourself in this, then I'll put a link to the full <laughs> ENT UK commissioning guide, tonsillectomy 2021. <laughs> I'll put that in the show notes so you can have a proper look at it if you want to. Now, if you're more time pressured, then mm. here is a summary. So to be eligible for referral, people must be experiencing recurrent episodes of sore throat due to acute tonsillitis that have required treatment. And they should have had seven or more episodes in the past year or five or more episodes per year in the past two years or three or more episodes per year in the past three years. Now, additional indications include suspected tonsillar tumour, periodic fever, severe guttate psoriasis, renal disease resulting as a complication of acute bacterial tonsillitis and obstructive sleep apnea in children. Now, a fixed number of episodes may not be appropriate in adults with severe symptoms or where complications such as Quincy have occurred. So it's probably worth noting that local referral pathways may vary. Um, and a recent study, mm -hmm. the Natina trial, showed that in adults who meet these referral criteria, tonsillectomy is cost effective and has a positive impact on quality of life. So we should refer. So there we go. Um, I hope that answered that question. Um, and he <laughs> here are your learning points for sore throat and tonsillitis. In adults and children aged three years or more, use fever pain or centaur scores to reduce antibiotic prescribing. Fever pain may reduce antibiotic prescribing more than centaur. And refer for tonsillectomy if people meet the UK criteria. Okay, so now it's time for the part of the podcast that um, lots of people love um, and have been sending in their stories. So it's time for our best intention story. And this one comes from a former trainee. So here we go. Dear Caroline and Nick, I was inspired to write in and share my best intention story after hearing last month's story about a home visit that didn't go well and the memorial bench that was destroyed in the process. I was a GP trainee in a rural practice. I was nearing the end of my training, so I was trusted to be duty doctor and go out on visits by myself. 
Everything seemed so exciting back then. <laughs> I don't think I'd be excited about being duty doctor and having a visit now. <laughs> it was the end of the day and a call came in from a frail elderly man who'd gone into urinary retention. Let's call him Bill. Now, Bill really wanted to stay at home with his wife, Betty. They'd never been separated in 60 years of marriage. That kind of thing always tugs at my heartstrings, and so I was determined to help. The district nurses had finished the day, and so it was down to me to save the day. I felt like one of your primary care superheroes as I went out to visit with the catheterization kit. Now, between you and me, it had been a little while since I'd last done one of these in hospital, and so I was finding it helpful laying everything out on the bed, having done all the provisional cleaning. It was helping me to remind myself which order to do things in and which hand to put where, etc. You get the picture. Anyway, as I was doing this, I heard Bill shout, No, William, get down! (laughs) Suddenly, there was the most gorgeous golden Labrador in the room. Quick as a flash, he jumped onto the bed and ran off with the catheter. (laughs) Now, of course, the only person in the house who had any chance of catching the dog was me. I was terrified he was going to choke on the catheter, so I had to get it back as soon as possible. Now, being a trainee, I made a rookie error. I'd only bought one catheter. I'd be lying if I didn't admit that for a split second, I might have looked at the catheter once, once I'd retrieved it from the dog and thought to myself, can I use it? Can I? (laughs) But of course, I didn't use it. I had to drive back to the practice to get another catheter and start again. So my learning points are always shut the bedroom door and always bring more than one catheter. So there we are. I think that's my favourite one so far. (laughs) Thank you for sending that in. (laughs) I have a huge sense of sympathy for that poor trainee. That must have been quite a stressful situation. (laughs) I can imagine. But also, you know, I'm sure we would all look at the catheter and go, no, I can't. can't, No, I I wouldn't. No, but you know, just... Just a fleeting thought. <laughs> it, it is. It's that. It's that moment, isn't it? Of exactly. oh, yes. what am I going to do? Exactly. Yes. Mm. yes. Anyway, thank you just for make that it one. Very clear. It's we do not advocate putting in catheters that have been anywhere near a dog. So, <laughs> a- absolutely not. No. 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 No pet-related <laughs> catheters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Caroline, what's in the Red World calendar for this month? <laughs> um, well, I think. Everyone's recovering from their Christmas break. So it's that busy time of year. We're we're just getting all the articles finalised for the next season of the GP Update courses. So our authors and editors are super busy doing that and planning what we're going to be filming for the digital courses and teaching on the face-to-face courses. Um, We've got two lovely courses that we're doing, some face-to-face courses with the Ministry of Defence. So if you see Sue Williams out and about for those, give her a wave and say hello. Um, What else? We've got our first ever Red Whale together on urgent care on the 19th of January. So that's a new course for us. It's been available on demand for a while, but our first live event with Kate and Susan. So that's pretty exciting. And oh, it's our Red Whale conference as well, isn't it, Nick? So that's the time of year we all get together as a team and talk all things Red Whale, share feedback, try and work out how to make our teaching even better to support 
all those lovely people working in general practice. So yeah, lots of exciting things going on this month. Yeah, that sounds yeah very good. I'm very much looking forward to the Redwell Conference. And also, as Caroline was saying, if you see one of our presenters on a course, then do say hello. Um, and also feel free to give them either your nomination for a primary care superhero or mm. your best intention story. So we're always looking out for those. So please do that. <laughs> okay, so next one, our next pearl. Are you ready for that, Caroline? Yes. I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Okay, so here we go. And this one was entitled, The Heating's Back On, Beware Carbon Monoxide Poisoning. Now, this is what we said when we released the pearl. Carbon monoxide poisoning is rare, but easily missed. Making the diagnosis relies on spotting patterns in the history. This one was a quick read. It only took me about two minutes and 29 seconds to read, to be specific. Um, but it was jam-packed with super useful information. So what did this one mean for you, Caroline? Well, Nick, this is the one I've been waiting for. It just feels like one of those conditions it's worth reminding ourselves of every few years. It's one of those things that if we don't think about it, we'll miss it. Yes. Um, so it isn't common and it's easy to miss, but around 50 people a year die from carbon monoxide poisoning in the UK. And over a 12 year period, there were over 2000 admissions with unintentional carbon monoxide poisoning. It can be caused by faulty cooking or heating appliances clogged chimneys, wood burners or fires without adequate ventilation and even excessive tobacco smoke exposure. One of the main points for me which leapt off the page about this was never use a pulse oximeter to check for carbon monoxide poisoning as it will be falsely high. The infrared light used by pulse oximeters does not distinguish well between oxyhemoglobin and carboxyhemoglobin. Now that is such an important point that it was mentioned more than once in the pearl. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you remember nothing else from this month's podcast, leave with that. And just a reminder, in case like me, you'd forgotten, the issue is that carbon monoxide binds with much greater affinity to haemoglobin than oxygen and effectively reduces the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. But that won't be reliably detected on a pulse ox as low saturations. So we need to trust the clinical picture and our suspicions. So, you know, If the SATs are abnormal, great. But if they're normal, don't be reassured. Yeah. And talking about suspicions and stuff like that. So when should we consider this? Because I, I seem to remember something in medical school about cherry red skin tone. Yeah, there was that, wasn't there? And you guess it, of course, that's vanishingly rare and not at all useful yeah. to us in GP land, like so many of the things we learnt at medical school. But in <laughs> fact, there aren't really any very useful signs. So this is one of those things that we just have to think about it. Let's talk about the symptoms. People can present with either acute or chronic poisoning. And in acute poisoning, the symptoms will usually have only been there for hours. Whereas with chronic poisoning, the history may be over weeks or months. And I assume with acute poisoning, it's sort of when you're exposed to a really high amount all at once. And with chronic, it's a lower amount that gradually builds up in your system. A clue is that the symptoms might be intermittent and get worse overnight as the person's exposed to the faulty appliance. And then they tend to improve during the day if the person's out and about. And an interesting point for me was that actually smokers have a higher tolerance for carbon monoxide because they're exposed to it on a regular basis. And so they may only present with symptoms after a really substantial exposure. Now, because of how acute poisoning presents, it's often misdiagnosed as viral flu or gastroenteritis. So you can understand why when you listen to this list, because it might present with headache, tiredness, nausea and vomiting, mm -hmm. abdominal pain, chest pain, generalised body pain, shortness of breath, 
seizures, coma, and ultimately death. Yikes. I mean, this just isn't going to be easy to pick up, is it? But it's that sort of spidey sense and the context. Um, Chronic carbon monoxide poisoning can present in many different ways. And most of the symptoms, again, are pretty vague. They include things like inattention, memory loss, fatigue, sleep disturbance, personality change, mood change, Parkinsonism, muscle spasms, tinnitus, photophobia. So I will say it again, if we don't consider it, we might miss it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's definitely one of those ones, isn't it? Now, um, if we suspect carbon monoxide poisoning, then we should refer immediately to A&E. They will give 100% oxygen via a non-rebreathe mask because this reduces the half-life of carboxyhemoglobin from four to six hours to 40 to 60 minutes. Now, if the patient is acutely unwell, then we could give the oxygen whilst waiting for the ambulance. Now, All of that, we also then need to take a step back and consider who else at home might be affected. Do they need assessment or admission as well? Um, Most patients will be given oxygen for six hours and then, if well, be discharged, but obviously not back to where the faulty appliance is until it's all been fixed. Yeah, and I think having discussed all this, it's sort of important to ask ourselves, you know, do we have a carbon monoxide detector at home? And when did we last check it was working? And if you have a fuel burning appliance at work or at home, do you also have a carbon monoxide detector? And when did you last check it was working? So just some prevention things we can do. Yeah, exactly. So here are your learning points for carbon monoxide poisoning. It's rare, but easy to miss as symptoms are vague. And when we're taking our history, focus on the timing of symptoms and whether they resolve when someone's away from a potential source. If carbon monoxide poisoning is suspected, then send directly to A&E. And if they're acutely unwell, then we'd give 100% oxygen via a non-rebreathe mask whilst we're waiting for an ambulance. And we do not use a pulse oximeter to assess well-being. Okay, so it's our final section now. And it's a little bit different because we're talking about bites um not animal or insect bites though we did cover those a few podcasts ago but instead video bites nuggets of bite-sized learning that we wanted to share with you now we have a huge bank of these at Redwell now and they are updated refilmed and curated as part of our digital courses but we didn't want to keep them all to ourselves so we gave six free bites in our pearl email that went out just before christmas and and these will stay free to access for the next six months or so for you to try so if you hadn't had a chance to catch them yet then use the link in the show notes to watch them and don't forget to log your learning points and claim that cpd as well so the free bites that we gave away were infantile hemangioma shoulder examination hoarding disorder serotonin syndrome cancer early diagnosis and short stature so we thought we'd have a quick look at each of these in turn and say what shouted at us about them now i love watching all of them because i'm a very visual learner and in ali's fantastic bite on infantile hemangioma which is five and a half minutes long the thing that shouted at me the loudest was using the infantile hemangioma referral score to help me decide if a baby needed urgent referral or not and i love the fact that it's it's really easy to follow and it's a yes or no question that you answer in the scoring system and it gives a definitive answer of what to do and not many things in primary care (laughs) can do that (laughs) So what shouted at you, Caroline? 
Yeah, you've got to appreciate a definitive answer, haven't you? Um, well, yeah. I loved Ali's story, actually, about how easy it can be to be falsely reassuring in primary care and that actually 70% of children end up with permanent skin changes as a result of hemangioma. So it is worth referring them if those hemangiomas are in sensitive areas and that actually the simple treatment with oral propranolol can be given if it's offered in that sort of critical rapid growth phase before three months of age. All of this was completely new learning for me. So I feel much more confident now about when to refer. Yeah, it was all new for me as well. So that's a really, really good one to see and and good one to kick off with as well. Um, The next bite to talk about was primary care shoulder examination. Now, this one lasted just over eight minutes. And I particularly like the visual representation of trapezius (laughs) that they used at one point. I really, really like that. Um, And um, Mike was examining Fiona. And the thing that particularly shouted at me from this, apart from the fact that it felt really good to refresh my memory of what a really good shoulder examination should look like, was how we can switch the muscles on and off. And this can switch on and off the pain, meaning that we can reassure our patients that this is more of a muscle than a bone issue if you can demonstrate this happening. How about you, Caroline? Ah, shoulders. Oh, gosh. You know, you know, we all have those areas in medicine that we hate, like minor kidneys, feet and shoulders, basically. I, Sounds like a song. I used to feel really underconfident about <laughs> kidneys, shoulders. Yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> but actually, we taught. Um, we taught shoulder examinations on a Redwell course probably in about 2009 based on a BMJ rational examination article that was written by Andy Carr, a shoulder orthopod in Oxford, and it gave a really lovely, simple approach. And in this bite, Mike shares a similar approach. And it's now a joint that I actually look forward to seeing because I feel more confident in thinking of it in terms of, you know, is it the neck or the shoulder? Is there instability? Is there global restriction of movement or impingement? And I was also super relieved to know that I don't have to remember all the names of all those special tests for the rotator cuff. So if you hate shoulders like I used to do, I would recommend watching this one. Absolutely. It's a perfect refresher just to sort of sort of hone your your skills regarding the shoulder examination. So really recommend that one as well. Um, now, next up, we have hoarding disorder. Uh, now, this again was five and a half minutes long and Susan took us through this one. Um, so have your smartphones ready because there's a handy QR code in the middle for the hoarding disorders UK oh. visual clutter image rating. And that is extremely useful. The thing that shouted at me was that the clutter has to be in an active living area in the house or active living areas of the house. So if they've got loads of clutter in the garage, but their active living areas of the house are kept clear, then they don't have hoarding disorder. What jumped out at you for this one, Caroline? Well, I feel really relieved about that garage information, having nearly sustained a clutter-related avalanche injury when I put the Christmas decorations away. Um, (laughs) But it also really brought back for me a home visit I went on many years ago where I actually had to climb in through the window to gain access because of the extent of hoarding. And actually, at that stage, I had never heard of hoarding disorder. So the two takeaways I took from Susan's teach were that a lack of insight of the person living with the hoarding is really common and that trying well-meaningly to address the clutter, so sending people in to help clear it can actually cause significant distress and that actually if people are happy to have help with tidying, they probably don't have hoarding disorder. 
And the second point was that if you think someone does have hoarding disorder, this is actually a form of self-neglect and we need to refer for safeguarding support and also consider whether there are comorbid mental health disorders that need treatment. And I think if you're working with paramedics or AMP colleagues who are doing home visits, this might be a really useful bite to share with them and they can access it for free too. They're very welcome to sign up for our pearls and there's a link to all of that in the show notes that you're welcome to share. Exactly. And so to serotonin syndrome, if you want a full discussion on this, then we actually covered it in more detail in our third episode back in June, um, which was called Save a Life, Change a Life, Quality of Life. So feel free to go back and have a listen to that if you'd like. Now, this bike is eight minutes long and Amna, again, uses some great visuals to get her points across. Now, in the previous podcast episode, the Save a Life part of the title was in reference to the fact that it can be life-threatening. And on watching it again and bearing that in mind, the thing that shouts at me is that although serotonin syndrome is commoner if a patient is on multiple serotonergic drugs, it can happen if they are on just one. So we have to be very careful about safety netting when we're prescribing serotonergic drugs. Yeah, and building from that, it tends to occur most commonly when people have recently started or changed serotonergic medication. So usually within hours rather than days. So we're looking for altered mental state, confusion, agitation, drowsiness, neuromuscular dysfunction or autonomic hyperreactivity. And if we are worried, then stopping the offending drugs if we can and referring, discussing with secondary care are important. The other practice changing thing for me was actually asking about psychoactive substances before starting serotonergic drugs. So sort of as part of the recreational drug history, I don't think I'd always been quite so reliable at doing that. Yeah, and that's one for my action plan as well. And there's lots and lots in that one, as in all of them. Um, Now, next up, we have the Cancer Pitfalls Bite, which is a whale art. Now, we get loads of positive feedback about our whale arts, um, and they've been used for lots of different topics in the past. And this one shows off the format in all of its glory. (laughs) It's great how much information that they get into the nine minutes, nearly 10 minutes of the bite. Um, And I find whale arts very therapeutic to watch, especially if you can watch it again and again, and you don't have to scribble down copious notes. Um, And for me, the thing that leapt out at me was... Young people get cancer too. The colorectal cancers are increasingly seen in younger people. Um, And this is particularly um, important when you consider several of the media campaigns that have been run in recent years because of high profile younger people who've sadly been diagnosed with and ultimately died from colon cancer. The hashtag never too young campaign, which was started by Bowel Cancer UK back in 2013, is often mentioned in the media and it's now a global campaign. Back in 2019, they published a symptom diary to help people track and demonstrate to their primary care clinicians the symptoms that they're experiencing. And this was endorsed by the Royal College of GPs. So we might get patients coming to us with this. Caroline. Yeah, I love this whale art. So we've been using it on our cancer courses for some time to just offer a starting framework of some of the pitfalls that we can so easily fall into when we're trying to spot cancer amongst everything else we see in primary care, and particularly when the symptoms are vague or undifferentiated. And I think there are two take-homes for me every single time I watch this. The first one is 
beware recurrent infections. So particularly UTIs in older women, where we know bladder and renal cancer tend to be diagnosed late. And also sort of unexpected or a change in pattern of recurrent exacerbations of COPD. This can be a calling card for cancer and so easy to miss. Um, Always a reminder to think about our systems in practice. Would we spot these now that continuity of care is often less? And have we set up systems to help us to flag these concerns? So that's my first learning point. And the second one that always comes out for me is that both patients and us as clinicians can be falsely reassured by negative test results. When we do a test, of course, we want it to come back normal. But especially things like a negative chest x-ray or a normal CA125, they're not good enough to rule out cancer. So it's really important when we set up these tests that we do really good safety netting about what we'd expect the test to show and what it means if it's normal, if the person's symptoms get better but also if their symptoms don't get better, what would we want that person to do? So two really important takeaways from that one for me. Absolutely. And often it's about trusting that sixth sense that that we have in primary care. If we're not happy about something, we're worried about a patient, then just go with that and follow it through. Um, So on to our final bite now. And this one was um, short stature. IO takes us through it all. And by the end of the 12 minutes, I'm willing to bet that you've learned lots of new things. And even if you might not be able to remember absolutely everything, you'll know where to look them up. Red whale knowledge. (laughs) Now, there are many things that shouted at me. And the main one about it was that there are four types of short stature, which are faltering height, significantly low height, below mid parental height, and short stature with chronic illness. And I found it really useful how IO took us through the different types and highlighted the red flags to look out for as well. Yeah, and I was really shocked to hear that our children are getting shorter and that this often reflects health inequalities. It was a good reminder for me that growth is like a great barometer of lots of health parameters in children. And we can really think about it as like a a long-term vital sign. Because I was lucky enough to do a peds job. And of course, lots of GP trainees don't get to do those these days. But this was a really good reminder for me of how to interpret growth charts, how to calculate mid-parental heights. And I would imagine this bite might be really useful for lots of GPSTs. So again, if you have a GPST in your practice, Um, let them know that they can access these bites and pearls for free to support their training exactly so there you go a real bumper edition to launch us into 2024 and all that free content too so tell everybody that would benefit from it and before we go we just got time for some primary care superheroes Narida Burney would like to nominate Caroline, our practice nurse, who leads an amazing team of nurses, as well as keeping us up to date on our infection control responsibilities. Excellent. Um, And Angelina Solomon would like to nominate Dr. Samir Khan. They believed in what a pharmacist can offer in primary care and always um, has been an advocate for this. Dr. Khan has always been ready to support as a clinical supervisor throughout the PCPEP course and the independent prescribing course, giving me a solid foundation. So there we go, Dr. Samir Khan. And Peter Clegg would like to nominate Dr. Spruce, my partner in crime this year. Couldn't have set up the new partnership without him. We have just set up a new GP partnership and managed to get voted top in Worcestershire and Herefordshire in the patient survey this year. 
couldn't have done it without him. Well, that's a lovely celebration to end on, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic. And, and do send in the Primary Care Superheroes nominations for us and we'll use them next time. So that's about it from us for this time. All the resources you need are in the show notes. And all the links are in the show description on your preferred podcast platform. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. And if you want to see something about the podcast, then please use hashtag Red Whale Pod. And the other thing that you can do um, if you click on the link in the bio on social media is to leave us a voice message telling us about anything that you found helpful or you'd like us to go over. You can also email us. Our address is podcast at red co.uk and until next time i'm caroline green and i'm nick kendry remember to keep redwell knowledge open on your desktop at work so we're with you when you need some extra information or reassurance take care and look after yourself bye-bye goodbye